If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's episode, we have another in our recorded lecture series from our 2019 History Weekend event in Winchester. This time, it's the best-selling military historian Anthony Beaver, speaking about his most recent book, Arnhem, The Battle for the Bridges, 1944. Thank you very much indeed. At dawn on Sunday, the 17th of September, 1944, squadrons of medium bombers and mosquito fighter bombers took off for the Netherlands. This was the overture to Operation Market Garden, Field Marshal Montgomery's plan to jump the River Rhine at Arnhem and advance into Germany. Montgomery was convinced that if he could cross the Rhine before General Patton to his south, then General Eisenhower would have to give him the bulk of the supplies and also command over American formations. That morning, more than 20,000 paratroopers queued for breakfast near airfields all over England. The 82nd and 101st American Airborne Divisions had hot cakes and syrup, fried chicken with all the trimmings, and apple pie. Paratroopers from the British 1st Airborne Division piled their mess tins with smoked haddock, quite a lot of which ended up on the floor of the aircraft, a sergeant remarked. As the British 1st Airborne lined up for mugs of tea before boarding on the airfield, some demonstrated conspicuous optimism, such as taking a football ready for a celebration match as soon as they'd captured Arnhem Bridge. The American equivalent appeared to consist mostly of fantasies about yet another foreign country. A young uh, American lieutenant remembered wondering what all those blonde girls really looked like with wooden shoes on their feet and windmills in their eyes. A number of American paratroopers uh, had heard that the Netherlands was the country of diamonds, and they dreamed of uh, returning home with enough loot to set themselves up in style. The first aircraft to take off carried each division's pathfinders, who would land on the drop and landing zones and fight off any Germans they found there, and then guide in the waves of troop carrier aircraft. At least 20 of the British Pathfinder Company were, in fact, German and Austrian Jews. To conceal their origins in case of capture, 
their dog tags and identity papers carried English names. And these Jews would fight ferociously, taunting the Germans in their own language. Next to leave were the tug planes and their gliders, carrying divisional headquarters and field ambulances, as well as troops, jeeps, motorcycles, and anti-tank guns. In, um, finally, it was the turn of the C-47 troop-carrying aircraft. With a deafening roar, their engines suddenly speeded up, flattening the grass either side of the runway, and then these heavily laden aircraft accelerated away. Inside the strutted metal cave of the fuselage, the paratroopers sat wedged in their aluminium bucket seats, facing each other across the narrow aisle. They mostly avoided eye contact until the aircraft reached cruising height. As the Air Armada crossed the North Sea, the Guards Armoured Division prepared for its attack north from the Belgian frontier all the way to Arnhem and the bridge over the Rhine and beyond. The plan was to join up with the American 101st Airborne in Eindhoven that night, then charge on to Nijmegen where the 82nd Airborne would have secured the huge road bridge over the River Vaal. And from there, it was a straight road up to Arnhem and General Urquhart's 1st Airborne Division. The Irish Guards group could just see the uh, border posts through their binoculars. Many had that strange feeling of imminent danger in the pit of the stomach. Their commander, Colonel Joe Vandeleur, who'd been a keen horseman before da badly damaging his leg, thought that it felt like the start of a race. We were lining up at the start line, and the finish was the Zyder Z, 90 miles away. In Arnhem and the nearby village of Osterbeek on this Sunday morning. Churches were not as full as usual. Congregations consisted almost only of uh, women and uh, children or very old men. The men had dived undercover to avoid being rounded up as hostages or shot in reprisal for a resistance attack on the railway viaduct outside. Bombs exploding in the distance made windows rattle. Then a sudden cut in the electricity supply brought church organs to a groaning halt as the lights went out. The congregation in the Dutch Reformed Church in Osterbeek guessed that the attacks signified an imminent Allied invasion. Spontaneously, they stood up and burst into the national anthem forbidden by the Germans, the Hetzelhelmus. Despite later conspiracy theories, that the invasion plan of Operation Market Garden had been betrayed, the Germans were in fact taken totally by surprise. Generalfeldmarschall Model and his staff had to evacuate the Hotel Tafelberg in Osterbeek when British paratroopers and gliders began to land some three kilometers to their west. The only German unit ready for action on that uh, Sunday afternoon was an SS training and replacement battalion commanded by SS, SS Sturmbahnführer Sepp Kraft. Kraft guessed that the objective was the bridge, so he deployed, sorry, he deployed his men in a blocking line to slow the British down along the two main routes from the west into Arnhem. For reasons explained, I think, in my book, the whole plan was profoundly flawed. 
In fact, Operation Market Garden should never have been launched. Montgomery had been determined to impose his plan on the first Allied Airborne Army, even though both General Eisenhower and the British Chiefs of Staff had agreed that the Air Force commanders must have the final say over any airborne operation. But Monty thought they were frightened, and he refused to consult them. He even said that uh, our Chief, our Chief Marshal Lee Mallory was a gutless bugger. He simply sent, Montgomery simply sent General Boy Browning, uh, the British commander of the airborne troops, back to England on the evening of the 10th of September to announce his plan. But Brigadier General Williams, the American uh, commander of Troop Carrier Command, pointed out that the distances were rather greater than in Browning's calculations. So they could not now tow two gliders behind each troop carrier, but each C-47. The days were now shorter, being the, towards the end of September, uh, so only one lift was possible on the first day. And this meant that half the force landed in each of the three divisional areas would have to stay behind so as to guard the dropping zones and the uh, landing zones. The US Air Force operations also officers also refused to attempt any of the coup de main operations against the bridges, rather like at Pegasus Bridge in Normandy, because they said that the flak defenses around the bridges were far too strong. So as a result, the British drop and landing zones were at least eight miles from the main objective, the Arnhem Bridge, which meant that they lost all hope of surprise. And surprise was the vital advantage for lightly armed airborne troops. Browning should have flown straight back to Montgomery in Belgium and say, I'm sorry, Field Marshal, but we must reconsider the whole plan. But Browning himself was desperate to command uh, the operation. And he feared that if he objected, uh, Major General Matthew B. Ridgway, who in any case was actually more experienced in airborne operations than Browning, would be given the task himself instead. The trouble was, as you might imagine, there was always an element of vanity uh, in some of these cases. And um, rather a lot of people were going to suffer as a result. And both Browning and uh, Montgomery had fatally underestimated the German ability to react with unbelievable speed and ruthless prioritization, neither of which were British virtues. The German reaction was indeed fast and furious. Scratch units were assembled. For example, Herbert Stenzelmuller, a Kriegsmarine cadet, was out on a Sunday stroll in the ancient city of Clever, just over the German border when sirens sounded. Members of the Feldgendarmerie, the German military police, drove through the streets ordering all service personnel to report immediately for duty. He, uh, Stenzelmuller and the other naval cadets were issued with Dutch rifles captured in 1940, and they were driven to Nijmegen. Stenzelmuller and his comrades saw a German officer of the Reich Labour Service with two Dutch teenagers who'd just been captured wearing orange armbands, the symbol of the Dutch resistance. The RAD commander took out his pistol, Stelzenmuller wrote, and shot the two unarmed Dutch boys in cold blood. Both fell dead in the roadway. German troops in the area of Arnhem did not wait for orders. They set off on foot, by bicycle, or by, in vehicles as fast as they could towards the sound of firing. And that very night, Panzer tanks were rushed by rail on blitz transports to the Dutch frontier 
from all over Germany. In a marked contrast, parts of the British First Airborne Division were distracted and slowed down on their advance to Arnhem Bridge. The people were shouting and pointing in the streets, wrote Jan Voskiel, a member of the resistance, laughing and clapping. Small boys jumped up and down. Because the British, uh, because the paratroop helmet was round and unlike the usual British soup plate uh, shape of a helmet, uh, Jan Eckelhoff, another member of the resistance, asked them if they were American. Not bloody likely, came the offended reply, were British. Pretty Dutch girls kissed the soldiers, sweaty from the heat of the day and the march. Um, cheering civilians, women and old men offered fruit and drinks, including gin. Officers shouted orders that nobody was to drink alcohol or to stop. Younger Dutchmen, some of them just teenagers, emerged from hiding and begged to be allowed to accompany them and to take part in the fighting. West and northwest of Osterbeek, Kraft's SS trainees were able to slow that advance to Arnhem because the 1st and the 3rd parachute battalions stopped to deal with each little group or take circuitous routes round. But Kraft lacked the men to block the southern route along the River Rhine, along the north bank of the River Rhine. And this was why most of Lieutenant Colonel John Frost's 2nd Parachute Battalions were able to slip through to the bridge and take up positions around its northern edge. 64 miles to the south, the Sherman tanks of the Irish Guards had been ambushed that afternoon the moment they crossed the Dutch frontier. In a matter of minutes, nine Sherman tanks were ablaze. A dozer tank was needed to push the burning vehicles off the road so that the advance could continue. Montgomery had rejected warnings by Dutch officers that the single narrow road raised above the Polderland floodplain on either side could be a death trap. What is most astonishing of all, Vandeleur's brigade commander told the Irish guards that they could spend that first night in Valkenswart, the very first village they came to, when they were supposed to have reached Eindhoven by then. General Horrocks agreed because they had heard that the bridge at Son, north of Eindhoven, had been blown up by the Germans. But this was an astonishing decision by Vandeleur's superiors. All the bridging equipment was in the long column stretching all the way back into Belgium, far behind. So there was an even greater need to push on through the night so that the Royal Engineers could get to work. The American engineers with 101st Airborne simply did not have the equipment to rebuild a bridge strong enough to carry their tanks. Frost's force at the bridge at Arnhem stood to before dawn the next morning, Monday the 18th of September. With spare magazines to hand and grenades ready primed, they waited for the inevitable counterattack. A cold mist rising off the Rhine almost obscured the bridge, wrote a member of the mortar platoon. At nine o'clock, just out of sight on the southern part of the bridge, a column of some 20 vehicles uh, formed up from Hauptsturmführungsgräbner's uh, reconnaissance battalion of the SS Hohenstaufen Panzer Division. Grebner raised his right arm and all the drivers began revving their engines and then giving the signal, they all accelerated forwards. Puma armored, uh, eight-wheeler armored cars led the way, uh, followed by open half-tracks and then finally blitz uh, vehicles and lorries uh, with only sandbags around as protection for the Panzer Grenadiers on board. 
A British signaller up in the attic overlooking the bridge and the Ruhr shouted, armoured cars coming across. The paratroopers expected the leading vehicles to blow up on the necklace of uh, anti-tank uh, mines that they laid across the bridge. But the four Puma armoured cars uh, at the front were untouched. They charged through, firing their 50 millimeter guns and their machine guns, and they accelerated down the ramp and on into the city of Arnhem. Determined to make up for the slow start, Frost paratroopers reacted with every rifle, Bren gun, Sten gun, and, uh, and Vickers. The mortar platoon and the uh, Vickers medium machine gun platoon opened up with devastating effect. The anti-tank guns also found their range, and soon the next seven vehicles were hit, and Grebner's uh, men tried to escape. The vehicles were crashing into each other. There was chaos on the bridge. Some of those trapped on the bridge jumped off it, uh, off the parapet into the River Rhine, and Grebner himself is said to have been killed when he climbed out of his armored car trying to sort out the chaos. The smell of roasted flesh permeated the air for hours afterwards with the stench of the oily black smoke from the burning vehicles. Once the furious firing died down, the first parachute brigade's war cry from North Africa rang out, "War, Mohammed. Frost's men would have been a good deal less enthusiastic at their initial success if they had known quite how slowly the guards' armor division was advancing. Still under the astonishing misapprehension uh, that American airborne engineers could repair the bridge at Son, the Irish guards had what Vandeleur himself described as a leisurely start, leaving Valkenswart at only 10 o'clock the next morning. Numerous delays during the day meant that they were more than 24 hours behind schedule by the time they joined up with the 101st Airborne at Eindhoven that evening. Royal engineers worked flat out throughout the night and finally erecting a Bailey Bridge there at Son. And so finally, the guards armoured was able to continue uh, the next morning towards Nijmegen. But by then, they were already 36 hours behind schedule. American paratroopers liberating Eindhoven and other towns to the north soon encountered Dutch revenge on those who had consorted with Germans during the occupation. In Vekol, an American paratroop officer wrote, the collaborators were routed out of their homes for a long delayed retribution. The girls were mostly rather young and sensual featured and they went undemonstrably to have their hair shorn. They seemed to accept it as an expected fate. And the Dutch crowds who watched the tonsorial administration of justice display none of that sickening and almost animal glee that French crowds showed on similar occasions. They were amused, that was all. In Eindhoven, Dr. Boyance saw a group surrounding two attractive women who were about to have all their hair cut off. The shearer was clicking his scissors in anticipation when two American paratroopers from the 101st Airborne, armed with Thompson submachine guns, broke the circle. Stop that nonsense, they ordered, aiming their weapons. Then each one took a woman by the arm and led them off through the throng and into the, crown, into the town. The frustrated Avengers could do little but mutter angrily. An elderly man standing next to Dr. Boyance remarked quietly to him, they're no fools, these Americans. They're looking for women with experience of life, and if you ask me, they pick the right ones. Many of the Dutch disliked these forms of revenge, but others resented the way 
that British soldiers in particular tried to interfere. Generally speaking, they don't have the same hatred of the Germans as we have, a woman said. I told them that they could not imagine what these years had been like for us. There were, in any case, many worse things to worry about. In Nijmegen, as the 82nd Airborne and the Guards Armoured Division prepared to fight their way in, the Waffen-SS resorted to arson as a weapon of war. Parties of marauding troops and Hitler youth were sent in as fire racers into the town. Whole blocks were ablaze as the battle went on with German, British, and American machine guns firing. The fires are taking on fantastic dimensions, noted Albertus Urien in his diary. Flames leap up to great heights, walls cave in, rafters crash down, and in between are the cries of fleeing people and the sharp crack of rifles and machine gun fire. It is a stampede. A few have salvaged the barest necessities, such as clothing and blankets, and in fear, haul these along to a safer place. Mothers hold their crying tots close to them. For desperate fathers carry the bigger children as well as hastily packed suitcases. The anxieties they've been through can clearly be read on their faces. As expected, another German attack on Frost's men at the Arnhem Bridge came at dawn. SS troops forced the Dutch to leave houses in the vicinity. One of the last sounds that Konrad Hulemann remembered before leaving his home for the very last time was the unearthly racket of an upright piano on the floor above being riddled by machine gun bullets. The defenders at the bridge had already heard all the firing to the west, where other battalions from the 1st Airborne Division were trying to fight their way through the 9th SS Hohenstaufen's blocking lines to get to them. They had little chance of success. The planners back in Britain had not spotted how the routes from the landing and drop zones uh, to the west came together uh, on the edge of West Arnhem on the side of a steep hill near the St. Elizabeth Hospital, providing an ideal choke point for the Germans to defend. There were many grisly sights. Smoke and fire darkened the streets. Broken glass and broken vehicles and debris littered the road. A parachute with the 1st Airborne Division also battalion described the smoldering body of the lieutenant ahead of them. A tracer bullet had ignited the phosphorus grenade in one of his pouches, and he'd burned to death. A distraught father was seen pushing a handcart with the body of a child. With most officers killed or wounded, a chaotic retreat from Arnhem was soon underway. Men appeared out of the smoke of battle, as the doctor put it, running back in ones and twos like animals escaping from a forest fire. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. 
Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. The fighting at the north end of the bridge continued just as savagely. As ammunition ran low, Colonel Frost issued strict orders to make every shot count and only to fire when the Germans were attacking in the open. For one or two, the unbelievable strain of battle was just too much. A sapper suffering from combat stress walked out of the embattled school calling out, we're all going to die. Everyone yelled at him to come back, but he walked straight into the line of German fire. Psychological breakdown in battle could take different forms, ranging from catatonia and uncontrollable shaking to combat exhaustion, which led to bizarre behavior later in the battle. In the Sonord Hotel, one of the improvised field hospitals in Osterbeek, a barely wounded soldier would take off all his clothes and walk around pumping his arms and making noises like a locomotive. At the St. Elizabeth Hospital, Sister Stransky, a nurse from Vienna, had a strange encounter with a case of German combat fatigue. A Wehrmacht soldier appeared armed with a pistol. Sister Stransky refused to allow him to enter uh, the hospital with it. He kept repeating to her, I have come all the way from Siberia with a new weapon to rescue the Fuhrer. When still refused entry, he sat down on the steps of the hospital entrance and began sobbing. Many faced death with a calm resignation which deeply impressed those who witnessed it. One British paratrooper, shortly before dying from bullet wounds, observed laconically, and to think I was worried that my parachute wouldn't open. A sergeant who knew he was dying said to a medic, I know I'm not going to live. Would you please just hold my hand? And a little later, he passed away. Although the Chouinard was clearly marked with Red Cross symbols, the machine gun fire continued and a German assault gun fired four rounds into the building. The utterly vulnerable wounded could do little but put on their steel helmets and pull their blankets up over their faces as a defense against flying glass, which almost made them look like children trying to hide under the bedclothes. Mortaring was constant, and several men were wounded yet again by the shrapnel. Both Dutch volunteers and Royal Army Medical Corps personnel were astonished at how uncomplaining their patients were, showing little more than what a doctor described as the mirthless grin of pain. Courage, they noted, could never be predicted by appearances. A big, beefy man might go to pieces, while a slight, unassuming character could emerge a hero. That Wednesday, one of the greatest examples of collective bravery in the whole of the Second World War took place just west of Nijmegen, when Major Julian Cook's battalion of the 82nd Airborne paddled across the River Vaal under heavy fire. 
In the movie, A Bridge Too Far, Major Cook was played by Robert Redford. Uh, to my great surprise, I found in an American archive a furious letter from Major Cook protesting uh, both of being played by Robert Redford and of the way he was portrayed. I just thought most men would have been rather flattered, but anyway. <laughs> when, when the trucks bringing in the 26 assault boats eventually arrived, the paratroopers were appalled to find that they were just canvas on a flat-bottomed wooden frame. The order was given, and the paratroopers and engineers shouldered their boats like coffins with their outside hand carrying their weapons. They ran over the top of the dike and then down the slope. Slipping and sliding in the mud, uh, they struggled to get their boat straight in the water and clamber aboard. Captain Henry Keep, who had been an oarsman at Princeton, was counting one, two, three, four, but their efforts at paddling were all over the place. Then the Germans began firing in earnest with small arms fire, machine gun fire, artillery even, and 20-millimeter flat guns. Some boats were literally blown out of the water, while the small arms fire coming from the northern bank made the river look like some sort of seething cauldron. Uh, somebody else compared it to a hailstorm. In everyone's ears, wrote Keep in this letter to his mother, was the constant roar of bursting artillery shells, the dull wham of a 20 millimeter, or the disconcerting ping of rifle bullets. There was also the unmistakable thwack whenever a bullet struck a body. The arm muscles of those paddling screamed with the strain. But at last we reached the other side. We climbed over the wounded and dead in the bottom of the boat and waded ashore, where behind a small embankment, we flopped down gasping for breath, safe for the moment from the incessant firing. They then began to advance in extended skirmishing order, some several hundred yards wide. They cursed and yelled as they advanced, firing, from their machine, firing their machine guns and rifles from the hip. Many times I've seen troops who were driven to a fever pitch, Keep wrote in this letter, troops who for a brief interval of combat are lifted out of themselves, fanatics rendered crazy by rage and the lust for killing, men who forget temporally the meaning of fear. It is then that the great military feats of history occur, which are commemorated so gloriously in our textbooks. It is an awe-inspiring sight, but not a pretty one. Staff Sergeant Clark Fuller described his own experience of this extraordinary metamorphosis from intense fear to a sense of invulnerability. When we finally got to the opposite shore, I experienced a feeling I'd never felt before all the fear of the past 15 or 20 minutes seemed to leave me, to be replaced by a surge of reckless abandon that threw caution to the winds. I felt as though I could lick the whole German army on my own. The courage and the aggression of the American paratroopers prompted one of the guards officers uh, who was supporting them to observe, I think these paratroopers must be fed on dynamite or raw meat. The massacre which followed, as both fleeing and surrendering Germans were shot down, was a shocking sight. 267 bodies were found on the railway bridge alone, where the bulk of them had been trapped under fire from both sides. Lieutenant Colonel Christofferson, the commanding officer of the Sherwood Rangers, whose tanks uh, later supported the 82nd Airborne, liked Brigadier General Jim Gavin very much and considered his paratroopers to be the best infantry they'd ever worked with. But maybe on some occasions, Christofferson wrote in his diary, they were too tough 
especially in the treatment of prisoners whom they seldom took. I shall never forget seeing a jeep full of American paratroopers driving along with the head of a German pierced with an iron stake tied to the front. The spectacle haunts me still. Cook's 3rd Battalion advanced on towards the main road bridge. Both British grenadiers and Cook's paratroopers were convinced that they had reached the Nijmegen road bridge first. Perhaps, inevitably, in the circumstances, few accounts tally even on the, on the same side. But such a debate, however, is futile. It's far more important to understand the reasons for the British failure to advance onto Arnhem that night. Colonel, Colonel Reuben H. Tucker, of the, uh, uh, the commander of the regiment, uh, and his paratroopers were understandably furious. Cook's battalion and the engineers manning the boats had suffered 89 dead and 151 wounded. They naturally believed that the only reason for their semi-suicidal crossing of the River Vaal in full daylight was because every hour counted if the British 30 Corps was to save the first airborne at Arnhem. Otherwise, the attack could have waited until after dark. General Horrocks, the commander of 30 Corps, must shoulder most of the blame for the resulting damage to Anglo-American relations. He even wrote in his memoirs about the capture of the bridge, another hurdle had been overcome, and I went to bed a happy man. Horrocks had supported Gavin's plan for the assault crossing of the Vaal, and to underline the urgency, he had emphasized to Tucker's officers the desperate situation which the British 1st Airborne Division faced. The American paratroopers were better able than most to imagine what it would be like for their British counterparts. Then, as soon as they had achieved their objective with heavy losses, nothing happened. But there were, in fact, many good reasons why the Guards Armour Division, and especially the Grenadiers, could not push on that night. For a start, the Grenadier group had suffered heavy casualties in the fighting for Nijmegen, and they were still fighting Euling's SS Panzer Grenadiers until after 10 o'clock that night, so they couldn't disengage. And apart from the one troop uh, designated to cross the bridge, all their tanks were low on ammunition and fuel. And this is why Brigadier Gwatkin and Major General Adair, the commander of the Guards Armour Division, decided to switch back to have the Irish Guards back in the lead. But due to the chaos in the burning city of Nijmegen, the Irish Guards' tanks had not yet been resupplied with ammunition after their massive expenditure supporting the crossing of the Vaal. Horrocks, on the other hand, should have foreseen these problems and ensured that at least some well-prepared battle group was waiting and ready to advance rapidly north towards Arnhem through the night. At Osterbeek, the German and Austrian Jews in the British Pathfinder Company on the north side of the perimeter could be just as pitiless as Gavin's paratroopers. They too gunned down young German soldiers with their arms up trying to surrender. During a slight lull after a, another attack, members of the Pathfinder Company were surprised to hear music coming through the trees. A German loudspeaker van was playing in the mood. Stayed in position all day, a pathfinder wrote in his diary. Plenty of mortaring and sniper fire, so made myself a nice little trench. Got another cert when a bunch of jerrys came right out in the open in front of us. Also, several potables. Heard a mobile speaker in the distance. Funny shooting jerrys to dance music. British paratroopers also took pride in their toughness. 
A severely wounded officer from the 1st Parachute Battalion was lying in an aid station. Next to me, he recorded, was one of our chaps with his fingers blown off, coolly smoking a cigarette held between the bloody stumps of his fingers. Somehow summed up the airborne soldier, I thought. For civilians, still in Osterbeek, the constant German bombardment was terrifying. People in cellars lay curled up underneath their mattresses. Anxious mothers made their children wear saucepans on their heads like, uh, like helmets. Bravery and fighting skills, however, were not enough when lightly armed paratroopers lacking ammunition faced Royal Tiger tanks. Finally, on the night of the 25th of September, after nine days of fighting, the pitiful and totally exhausted remnants of the British 1st Airborne Division were withdrawn across the River Rhine. British sappers and above all Canadian engineers with their own storm boats achieved miracles despite outboard motors becoming flooded in the heavy rain. The senior engineer officer ordered operations to cease at, 08, at 0545 when it became evident that any further attempt to bring off men would be suicidal for the boat crews. But Lieutenant Russell Kennedy of the 23rd Canadian Field Company carried on even after dawn. Just on 2,400 men were brought across that night. Most battalions had lost at least 90% of their strength. After the last boat departed, several hundred despairing men still remained on the north bank of the Rhine. As the Germans moved in to round up the survivors huddled on the muddy shore, a Polish soldier was appalled when he saw four British paratroopers stand up in a tight circle, link their arms together, then one of them pulled the pin from a grenade which he did not drop. There was an explosion and the four men fell. That morning, the 26th of September, those who had not managed to get away were rounded up by triumphant SS Panzergrenadiers. The Germans were utterly bemused by the British compulsion to joke, even in defeat. A tough glider pilot sergeant faced by a tense Panzergrenadier pointing a rifle at his chest calmly took a small mirror from his pocket. He examined his growth of beard and then, with an absolutely straight face, he asked his captor whether there happened to be a dance in town that night. While British prisoners made the best of a bad job, this was a very dangerous time for all Dutch civilians who'd help the Allies. The Germans were determined to identify them. They, uh, the, the German authorities were ordered the whole of the population of Osterbeek to leave their homes immediately. And along the road, the SS lined up uh, the 150 German prisoners who'd been held uh, prisoner by the British in the Hartenstein tennis court to look for any civilians they could identify who'd help, been helping the British. Some Dutch members of the SS took great satisfaction in yelling at a group of, of their countrywomen, you see you celebrated too soon. One of the women forced to leave their homes, to which the Germans set fire, wrote philosophically, just for a moment I looked behind me, flames and smoke below from the house. We feel separated from it. We still have our lives. The Dutch, trapped behind German lines, the northern and western Netherlands, had very little to joke about. Some 3,600 had been killed in the fighting, 
and many thousands more severely injured. When Field Marshal Montgomery tried to pretend that Operation Market Garden had been a success, Prince Bernhardt, the Dutch commander-in-chief, observed that his country could not afford another Montgomery victory. Eisenhower's British deputy, our Chief Marshal Tedder, was even more furious at Monty's claim that Operation Market Garden had been a 90% success because they got 90% of the way to Arnhem. One jumps off a cliff with an even higher success rate, he wrote, until the last few inches. The assistance of the Dutch to the Allied Airborne Divisions and the National Rail Strike to hinder the arrival of German reinforcements provoked a terrible Nazi vengeance with food supplies cut off to the main cities of Amsterdam, Rotterdam, and The Hague. Members of the Wehrmacht in Rotterdam bragged that they did not need to pay at a brothel. They boasted that for half a loaf of bread, they could get anything they wanted from Dutch girls. During what became known as the Hunger Winter of 1944 to 1945, almost 20,000 people died of starvation. Some estimates go much higher because famine, of course, weakens any resistance to disease. Although the Dutch had much to forgive, their generosity to Allied troops at the time and ever since uh, towards the airborne veterans has been, I think, for the British, one of the most moving legacies of the Second World War. In Arnhem and Osterbeek in September, at the time of the anniversary, as we've seen, the 75th anniversary this year, houses are decorated with flags bearing the Pegasus symbol of the airborne, and triumphal arches are erected to welcome the veterans. And each year, the schoolchildren lay flowers on the graves of all those who died there. Amid the astonishing courage shown by civilians and soldiers alike in the Dutch archives, I found one particularly poignant story. A very happily married English lieutenant, parachute lieutenant, went to pieces in the battle soon after he landed. Along with two shell-shocked medical orderlies, he hid in the cellar of a country house on the western edge of Osterberg. They were still there after the remnants of the 1st Airborne Division were pulled back across the Rhine, and the family risked execution if British soldiers were found hiding there. One of the sons finally persuaded the three Englishmen to follow him down after dark to the riverbank to swim across the Rhine to Allied lines. One of the medical orderlies could not uh, swim, and so the three men tied themselves together. But during the, swim, during the crossing, the non-swimmer got into trouble and dragged the lieutenant down with him. The other orderly managed to cut himself free but he was captured by the Germans further downriver when washed up on the shore. Two years later, when the war was over, the lieutenant's widow, young widow, visited Osterbeck, and she went to meet the family. One thing led to another, and not long afterwards, she married the brother of the son who had taken her husband to the riverbank. Thank you very much. That was Anthony Beaver. Arnhem, The Battle for the Bridges, 1944, is out now, published by Viking. We're not currently holding any live events, but we are running a series of fortnightly virtual lectures on various different historical topics. You can find out more about them on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events. 
Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow when Chris Harding will be answering your questions on the history of Japan.